It says it's on. There we go. We're in business. It's a big treat for me to be here. So thank you all for welcoming me and showing up this morning. One of those admonitions we often heard as children was don't talk to strangers. Many of us were groomed, in fact, to be wary and distrusting and fearful, with good reason, I suppose. Still, according to Lord Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi in the UK, the Hebrew Bible commands us only one time to love thy neighbor, but 36 times to love the stranger. Hospitality to strangers is a core principle in most of the world's great religious traditions, and yet we only have to look as far as our own national conversation about immigration, or closer to home, I'm embarrassed to say it, my own behavior behind the wheel making my daily crosstown commute, to see that we've largely tossed that one aside. While we're used to hearing the expressions a complete stranger or a total stranger, I'm struck by the equally common expression perfect stranger and by its unintended double meaning. Dozens of times in my life I've encountered the perfect stranger, just the right person at the right moment who shows up with the right word, extends the right kindness, or perhaps points me in a direction I never would have considered. To put that last piece in a more personal context, I do need to share that I have judged myself rather harshly throughout my adult life for not having taken a more conventional linear path to professional success. You know what I mean, college, graduate school, good job, better job, make more money and more money, then you retire, then you die. While at the same time, I've taken no small satisfaction and even a little pride in having chosen a more circuitous life path. But I can blame a few perfect strangers for that, who have stood right in the middle of my path uninvited. One such person is a member of my home congregation in Santa Monica, California, Cassandra Christensen, who over 20 years ago stood in the middle of my path and held up a sign that led toward this career of chaplaincy so many years later. Another example came for me in 1973. I was a freshman at UCLA majoring in design very focused on my future career and success. I also happen to really love dancing, and I was taking dance classes at the old Roland Dupre studio on La Cienega in Hollywood. I was even on scholarship, which meant I could take as many classes as I wanted for free in exchange for a few chores around the studio. That's because Roland thought he was grooming a future professional dancer. I knew in my bones that that wasn't in the cards for me, but I went along with the program because, hey, I, I wanted the classes. I was a part of a small company of dancers who gave a one-night concert performance to showcase the choreography of one of the teachers at the studio, Chuck Moore. One of the other teachers at the studio, Joe Bennett, came to see that performance and was apparently impressed enough with my work that he took it upon himself to invite a friend of his, Walter Painter, a well-known choreographer at the time, to come observe me in class because he knew Walter needed another male dancer to fill out his chorus for a season of summer stock at the Sacramento Music Circus. Apparently, the whole class knew who Walter was except me. They were all selling it, knocking themselves out to beat the band, and there I was, clueless. But I was the one who got the note after class. Please call me about work. So I called him, and he offered me the job. And the first thing out of my mouth, I'm a little embarrassed to say, was, Sacramento? In the summer? It's kind of hot. 
isn't it? What was I thinking? I was 18 years old. What better summer job could there be? And it certainly paid a hell of a lot more than selling bell-bottoms at Macy's or the Broadway or May Company. So I took the job, and I had the time of my life. I worked my tail off, five shows in six weeks. You rehearse one during the day, perform the other at night, no nights off. I have the fondest memories of my time that summer. And it actually marked the beginning of a career as a professional dancer that I said I never wanted, that ended up paying for the rest of my college education, gave me the opportunity to travel, see the world a bit. I still take class every Saturday from Walter Painter some 45 years later with a bunch of old dancers. It's the highlight of my week. But I need you to hear that I didn't set my sights on any of it. Just like I never set my sights on this career of chaplaincy. I felt kind of led here. So what is it that makes a stranger sometimes more perfect for us than a good friend or a family member, a loved one? For one thing, a stranger generally has no agenda for us. They no need to fix us or contextualize our lives for us on our behalf. More often than not, they're completely indifferent to us. And yet in our bumping up against one another, sometimes there can be a gift, maybe a new awakening, a new awareness, maybe a reminder of an old truth. I had a breast cancer patient named Dorothy, whom I would visit every week in the clinic while she was getting her infusion treatments. Her husband, Frank, came with her to every appointment. Frank was a bit of a grumpy Gus. He was kind of a curmudgeonly fellow. He did love to collect and restore vintage and antique cars. I listened to many stories about their cross-country trips to various car shows. One week, Frank was telling me what happened after the previous week's appointment. After Dorothy's infusion was complete, they went back out to the parking structure. That week, Frank had chosen to drive one of his restored beauties to the appointment and he found the side of his car bashed in. Now, if any of you have ever been in that situation, as I have, you know that feeling of deep disgust and outrage and victimhood, and he makes his way closer to the car, and then he finds a note pinned under the windshield wiper. Name, address, phone number, insurance information, apology. I had for weeks been listening to Frank tell me how disenchanted he had become with the human race. And here, he was given this gift. Michael, I got to tell you, it was almost worth the hassle of having to get my car fixed just to be reminded that there's still good people out there in the world. Now, it was Frank's creative choice to find the meaning in that ordeal, but it was the stranger having done the right thing that provided the catalyst. Sometimes a stranger can be a kind of teacher. In October of 2009, my husband Scott and I took a trip to Eastern Europe, and we made a stop in Krakow, Poland, in order to visit Auschwitz and Birkenau. For those of you who have not been, as you might imagine, it is an overwhelming, devastating experience. We chose to rent a couple of those acoustic guides so we could tour the camps at our own pace rather than join a guided tour group, thinking that might dilute our experience. It was hard to know what to do with the sheer volume and intensity of emotion that would come up with each step rounding each corner. There were so many moments I wanted to say, stop, get me out of here, I can't breathe, I can't see one more thing. But you knew you had to, you had to stay put. 
you had to bear witness to every inch that you possibly could. It would somehow be a sin not to. In the years since, there have been those who have asked, why would you ever have wanted to go? Particularly as a Gentile. I mean, I get it. It's a place of pilgrimage for Jews, but why was it important for you to go? It always struck me as an odd question. And the best answer that I have is that it's important to me to try to bear witness to the absolute worst of humanity as much as I want to bear witness to the best of it. Not only to bear witness to it, but also try to own that those aspects of humanity are alive and well within me too. Cruelty, hatred, anger, indifference, apathy. I always try to embrace the notion that nothing human is foreign to me. It always seemed a little glib to write off the Holocaust as some kind of aberration committed by subhuman evil monsters. Thank goodness I'm not like that, huh? It was unseasonably cold for late October, bitterly cold, in fact. As I was walking the camps, I found myself wondering about the more peripheral workers at the camps, who most certainly must have witnessed the most horrific scenes day in and day out, but presumably went home at the end of the day to families, loved ones. Hi, hon, I'm home. How was your day? How is it humanly possible to compartmentalize to that degree? And just then, this sweet little stray cat rubbed up against my ankle. He was weaving his way in and around my feet, purring his little head off. And I squatted down to try to pick him up, give him some love. Come here, sugar. Desperately wanting a reprieve from all of this horror, trying to squeeze myself into a tiny bubble of sweetness and affection. And at the same moment, feeling so much guilt for wanting that reprieve, for taking that reprieve. And at the same moment, realizing I had my answer. That's how it's done. You simply move into a different bubble of reality. That cat was my teacher. That cat was a perfect stranger. Not long ago, a colleague of mine, a social worker, asked me to go see Bruce in the hospital who was dying from liver cancer. I only met Bruce the one time, and I only saw him through this very narrow window of critical illness at the end of his life. Still, such a narrow opening can provide a surprisingly intimate view, particularly to the stranger. Now, Bruce is one who had lived his life on a very big stage, one of corporate boardrooms and international travel and great financial wealth. His world had now shrunk down to the size of this hospital room. Not having many friends or family about locally, his society had been distilled down to that of just the doctors and nurses and the housekeeping staff who came in to clean his room. Bruce found himself at a kind of spiritual crossroads he wanted to connect with the Methodist faith he dimly remembered from his youth, but not knowing how. He wanted to pray, but he didn't know how or for what. It seemed kind of hollow and empty now. So rather than launch into some lofty theological discussion, I invited Bruce to start closer in and maybe consider the magic inherent on the smallest gestures of kindness. Tender mercies, if you will. Oh, I know exactly what you mean, he said. Just last night, 
I had the most wonderful conversation with the woman who came in to clean my room. Now, if you met Bruce, you would never characterize him as wanting to be having conversations with the housekeeping staff. But life had changed. The world had changed. And she was it in that moment. Michael, she had such a sweet smile. And she had this demeanor that just made me feel like it was all okay. She even gave me a little gift. And his eyes filled with tears as he pointed to the little plastic angel over there on the shelf. I knew he had been touched by the magic of just being seen, of being received, of connecting with somebody. I, for one, put my faith in those kinds of connections, often between strangers. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at one of the chapters of the cancer support community outside Los Angeles to an audience of primarily cancer patients. And afterward, there was a time for Q&A, and this woman raises her hand and says that she'd like to know what is the meaning of life. Oh, that. While I'm fumbling to come up with some kind of answer, she doesn't wait for my answer. She wants to give me hers, which is as it should be. And she said, well, Michael, I think the meaning of life is that everybody wants to be known, not as in famous, but as in seen, witnessed, received. And I remember at the time my judging mind going into overdrive, thinking, well, that's way too simplistic, dear, but thank you for sharing. Is there another question out there? But I'll tell you, I have quoted her countless times in the years since, because I think she came close to hitting it right on the head. Too many times I've experienced it in my own lives. Too many times I've seen it in the lives of the patients I'm privileged to walk beside. The magic of just being seen, received, accepted, respected, as I am, as I am in my life, as it is in this moment. A year or so ago, I went to fill up my car at the local gas station. The USA station has the lowest prices in the neighborhood, and that afternoon, the place was jumping. There weren't any pumps available, so I'm waiting my turn, and I pull up and I fill up my car, and then it comes time to back out, and I'm carefully checking my mirrors and my rearview camera and my little Prius, and I'm slowly going, and then I hear crunch. I'd hit one of those three-foot-tall posts that are filled with concrete that was there to protect the apparently very fragile concrete curb surrounding the gas station sign. It was the one spot completely out of view of my mirrors and my rearview camera. And I didn't know it in that moment, but it was a $1,500 mistake. Now, anybody who knows me knows that such a mistake is proof in my mind that I don't deserve to live. I wish I were kidding. I got out of the car to inspect the damage, and I'd hit it in just the right way that the rear bumper and the rear quarter panel and the hatch cover and the taillight were all damaged. The taillight lay there on the cement like some kind of wounded animal. I sat there staring, stunned by this catastrophe, contemplating my own suicide, and I was completely unaware of the man in front of me pumping, car, pumping gas into his car who had witnessed the whole thing big strapping fellow whom you would never cast to be the merciful angel in this moment. He walks over to me and just says, oh man, that's rough, dude. I'm sorry. Said with all the compassion he could muster, not knowing what else to do, he bends over and he picks up my tail light and he tenderly hands it to me like it's my wounded dog or something. 
I look at him and I look at the light and I go to the trash can and I throw the light away. And there's a part of me that's observing the whole scene and can kind of see the preposterous humor in it all. But I'm way too caught up in my own grief and self-reproach. But also gratitude for him. I knew in that moment that he had eased the blow for me because he saw it. He got it and he knew how much it hurt. In our 40 plus years together, my husband Scott and I have always had cats. And in December of 01, our boy Junior died. After six years of assiduous care with kidney failure and heart disease, there has never been one before or since, quite like Junior Junebug. It was a Friday morning, and uh, Scott was en route flying home from New York on a business trip. I decided to stay home with Junior's body, thinking Scott might want to see him to say goodbye before we take him in to get cremated. So Scott's plane landed that afternoon, and he called from the cab, and I said, Junior's gone. And I asked him if he wanted me to wait so he could see him to say goodbye. And he said, no, 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 I can't see him like that. Would you please take him in? So I wrapped him in a little towel, and I put him in the back of my car, and I drive over to the vet, and I don't want to bring his stiff little body in through the waiting room where everybody's picking up their dog and cat, so I leave him in the car, and I go up to the front desk, and I just choke it out. My boy's gone. Will somebody please come out to the car and get him? And I went back out to the car. And I held him for the last time, and out comes this little Latino vet's assistant, and when he sees me, his shoulders just go. He just got it. He just got it. I kissed Junior for the last time, and I handed him over, and I got back in my car, and I just sobbed. I was oblivious to the couple who had just picked up their German Shepherd and had witnessed the whole transaction. They walked over to my car window, and they knocked. And I rolled down the window, and they just said, can we drive you home? I didn't accept their offer, but I have to say, those five words changed my life. They imprinted my heart with an image of what it means to be kind, what it means to be seen. So what is it that keeps us from being the perfect stranger, from being the one who's willing to say, I will be your witness, I will show up, I will face my own impetus, impotence, knowing there's nothing I could do to make it better. I do think that's it right there. It is not an easy thing to come next to another in their suffering, knowing there's absolutely nothing you can do to make this better. Nothing but show up, be a witness, be kind, a year or so ago, I was speaking to another congregation, and a man came up to me afterward and asked, how was it possible for you to have these meaningful relationships with all of these patients? It must take a long time to build that kind of trust, I imagine, huh? I thought for a moment, I thought, you know, it takes no time at all. Hearts are already broken wide open. The stakes are too high. It just doesn't make any sense to stand on ceremony much in the same way one might have a very meaningful, even intimate conversation with a total stranger one meets while traveling, particularly to a very faraway place. There you are, both out of your element, vulnerable, away from home. Just doesn't make any sense 
to stand beside, behind the facades that we use at home. A year or so ago, a dear friend of mine lost his elderly mother. And I called him the day after she died just to check in and see how he was doing. And he said, the crazy thing is, Michael, everybody keeps waiting for me to kind of fall apart. I guess myself included. And of course I don't. But I'm finding it strangers that get past my defenses in a way that those closest to me just can't. I had so many wonderful conversations with Randy over the last two years of his life. He was in his early 50s, colon cancer. Not long before he died, I was walking him out of the clinic and we were still chatting when we got out into the hallway. And while we were chatting, up walks another patient, gingerly making her way to the entrance of the clinic. She's there on a walker. Randy says, excuse me, Michael, just a minute. And he goes and he holds the door for her with a big smile on his face. There you go, sweetheart. He comes back to me and he says, you see, Michael, the way I see it, that's my job now, to be kind. That's what I do. Now, Randy's professional life was one that had been animated by high pressure, financial success, commercial real estate. It had all been refined and distilled now down to that as one who shows kindness. Cancer had disempowered him, robbed him of so much. But it didn't take away that career opportunity. It didn't take away that place to still find meaning in his life. Many years ago, I saw an interview on TV between Bill Moyers and Pema Chodron, the well-known Buddhist author and teacher. They were talking about New York after 9-11, and Bill was commenting on how New Yorkers, right after 9-11, weren't behaving like New Yorkers at all. They were really watching out for each other, tending to one another with care. And slowly, as life got back to normal, again, they started acting like New Yorkers again. And Pema said that's because after 9-11, New Yorkers really understood the groundless nature of life, that there is nothing to hold on to. And when we really understand the groundlessness of life, the only response that makes any sense at all is kindness. Kindness to others, kindness to ourselves. It's so deceptively simple. It's such a wildly undervalued virtue, kindness. And yet, I believe it offers us the pathway to being that perfect stranger. And in keeping our eyes and hearts open for those little gestures of kindness extended to us, feeling some gratitude for that, being able to recognize that, we get to experience the magic of so many perfect strangers in our midst particularly those who are willing to drive us all the way home. So be it. Thank you.